So we'll actually be in um, Matthew 21, and actually we're going to look at, just briefly, if you want to kind of find it and stick something in there, we're going to look at Numbers chapter 11. Uh, That's the appointing of the 70 elders. That's when Moses gets back up with what he says are 600,000 angry Israelites in the desert. And so Moses gets a little backup from 70 elders that are men of God. And I think that's going to be cogent to what we have to say about um, Matthew 21. And uh, just walking through that, that passage, uh, we're going we're gonna to hone in on uh, verse, I think, 22 and following, where it's the parable of the two sons. And this is unique to Matthew. Uh, if you look in Mark and Luke, yeah, it's verse 28 and following. I'm sorry, Matthew 21, 28 and following. If you look at Mark or Luke, they have, of course, just like this, uh, this gospel here in Matthew, they have detailed accounts of the last week of Jesus' life. And so you're going to have a lot of overlap between uh, Mark 11 and following, Luke, I think, the journey ends in 22 when we get into the last week of Jesus' life there. And, um, and then Matthew, uh, verses tw- chapters 20 and following, there's going to just be a significant amount of overlap as all three gospel writers really want to hone in. In fact, all four gospel writers focus in on the last week, the passion week of Jesus' life. Um, and what really stands out then are what they choose to include that the others don't. Uh, that becomes a significant to the message of a particular gospel writer, and, and they've chosen to include something that the others haven't. And so that's why, I don't know if you've ever used a parallel study Bible, you can get a parallel Bible of um, the gospels, especially the synoptic gospels, which is a cool theological term, as if there weren't enough big words in the Bible, they throw new big words at you. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really parallel accounts of Jesus' life, and um, differ less widely than John does from the three of them. So you can get a parallel account of, of their uh, story of the life of Jesus, and it's called a, a synoptic gospel, essentially. And uh, it's, it's helpful, especially when it comes to highlighting what a particular gospel writer is wanting to, to bring out. And one of the things that Matthew wants to bring out is this parable of the two sons, uh, one who says no and does yes, and the other who says yes and does not. Um, so we're going to kind of focus in on that, but I want to give you a sketch of what's going on. Um, Jesus, in the, in the beginning of this chapter, is entering into the city, and uh, 1 through 11, you get this story, and, and Dad covered the triumphal entry a couple weeks ago, because that's kind of his sweet spot. He wants to get into uh, the symbolism, not just the symbolism, the history of, of God working among people and how it culminates in the person of Jesus and, and is the answer to everything that the Old Testament questions, essentially. And, um, and he, he gave you 21, 1 through 11, and then 12 through 17 of that chapter is the cleansing of the temple, which I think is this beautiful thing where Jesus comes in on the donkey and goes to the temple and he claims it for himself. It's my house. And he cleanses it. And he heals the people who are there. And he enters into the city in peace. And these are what's happened. These are the events that transpire that really set the scene for what happens on Monday. What, what do the elders of the people respond to? Well, they're responding to Jesus announcing that he's their king, coming in peace, offering himself, coming to the temple, claiming it for himself, cleansing it of all those who would defile it and make it a den of thieves healing the people who are there and cleansing the leper. What is it? It says specifically, 
the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And so everything that follows out of that is going to be a bit of a response to what Jesus has just done. So the next morning, it says in verse 18, Jesus is coming into the city and he, com- and he comes across a fig tree. I've heard a couple different accounts of this. I've heard lots of different accounts of Jesus cursing the fig tree. But at least we know his disciples are with him. He's coming probably from Bethany over into the city through the familiar path from the east. Coming down, facing the temple probably. And he comes across a fig tree that is green and lush and fruitless. And he curses the fig tree because it bears no fruit. Whether it was in season to bear fruit or not, I've heard different stories. But if it has leaves, the figs come out in a tree what, before the leaves and then, and then coextensive with the leaves. Because it's a good word. You can use it tomorrow. Coextensive. He, the figs come in, oh, just like this joke. I'll try it on my cows. You should do it. Um, what's the joke? Um, I think, um, oh, April showers. That's a good, it's the appropriate month for that. April showers bring Mayflowers. What do Mayflowers bring? Flowers. Pilgrims. I love that joke. I knew Annie's joke. I think I heard it at your thing Pilgrims make flowers from pilgrims. Come on. It's good I know. See, look. We all got there eventually. Make flowers from pilgrims. Have to edit that out later. I that went to Liz, our exchange student from China. That was a mistake. It took me like a half hour to explain. Let me explain. There's the, the Pinta, the Nina, the Santa. You never mind. You know, I don't know. I was going somewhere. Oh, he comes into the city, and there's this green, lush fig tree, and he curses it. And I think there probably should have been figs on this thing. From the looks of the season, and from the way it was in bloom, or not in bloom, but full leaves, and there should be figs prior to, and then coextensive with the green, leafy season of this fig tree. And he walks up to it, and it looks healthy and fruitful, and it's not. And so he curses the fig tree, and it withers. And the disciples are just perplexed by this and he says to them if you had faith sort of reminiscent of Matthew 17 where he's just come down from the from the Mount of Transfiguration and is telling them if you just had faith you could move this mountain tell this mountain to move you wouldn't move the mountain God would move it but if you had faith in the God who moves mountains things would tremble nature would tremble in front of you and so there's this lesson in that and a lot of people see the nation of Israel in this fig tree because there's this look of piety and health and a barren lack of fruit. There's no life there that's producing fruit. And it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And maybe that's, you've heard it different ways, it's, it's Israel's rejected. I, I would firmly disagree with that. Or this generation is being rejected. I think that might be a more appropriate sort of um, application of this. It would be, I think, too far to create a whole theology of Israel and um, replacement or postponement or differenti- differentiation in the kingdom, what the kingdom's going to look like just from this. But it is, it serves as a good illustration of what's going on in the nation of Israel right now. Lots of piety, no fruit. And then he comes into the city, and when he entered the temple, which he's just claimed as his own, which I think is brilliant, The chief priests and the elders of the people come to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Authority has been a buzzword for Matthew, especially after the Sermon on the Mount. You get 5 through 7 and Jesus speaking authoritatively 
and Matthew 5 through 7, really giving his kingdom manifesto. And after that, you start seeing this word authority. It's this Greek word exousia. It means authority or power. It's this, not that you need to know the Greek word, but it's this cool, um, someone is in charge. The power resides with somebody. And that word starts cropping up. And like the centurion whose slave is at home and is sick, and he says, you don't have to come to my house. I am a man under authority as well, and I know authority when I see it. So you command her to be with him or her to be well, they'll be well. And then you get to, that's chapter 8. Chapter 9, right after that, you see the people are not just amazed. It says they're fearful. This word is, they're, they're fearful because Jesus was speaking as a man who had authority. And it was not like the leaders of the people who had no authority, did not speak as this one authority. And this becomes a buzzword. Authority comes up. In fact, what do you see right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission? How does the Great Commission start? All authority, heaven and earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That is a real discipleship word. You're following somebody who has authority. And so this, the elders of the people begin to question them. And the elders of the people is not a common word. It doesn't show up all the time. It's, it really stems from, um, the first time it's mentioned is Deuteronomy 19, where, where Moses, it's sort of this, they're not formalized, it's just, you know who you are, elders of the people, come up with me and you're going you're gonna to respond when God speaks. You're going to be representing the people. And then it really gets formalized in Numbers chapter 11, we'll take a look at it in a bit. And that seems to be a continuation of this idea. People are formally taking on this role that, that was started in Moses. You are the elders of the people. You are the recognized, hoary-headed leaders. It means white-haired. It's just fun to say it that way. You can call your grandpa hoary-headed sometime and be awesome. I love it. Uh, and they take on this role as leaders of the people. And they come and they challenge the authority of Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? I want to know if you can even recognize authority when you see it. So I'm going to ask you a question. John's baptism. Heaven or earth? What was its basis? Where did it come from? Well, this is quite a dilemma for, for the elders of the people. Suddenly they have to give an account for what they've done. They rejected John the Baptist. So they, naturally, they think, well, you know, his authority comes from himself, from earth. Oh, wait, but the people see him as a prophet. So we can't, the people can recognize authority when they see it, and they, ooh, um, how about we just say we don't know? And Jesus, true to his word, won't answer their question. Well, why would I bother telling you where my authority comes from? You don't recognize authority when you see it. Instead, I'm going to give you three parables, and maybe something of this will sink in. And so he starts with the first of three parables, which is a parable of the two sons. And it's a familiar one. I'll read it for you because we're going we're gonna to get into this. And then he, he, um, he goes into the parable of the landowner. And this is one that you're going to see in Mark and Luke as well, where it's this, you know, this, this landowner sends his servants to go collect the harvest at the appropriate time. And those he's rented the land to, they beat one, stone another, and kill the third, right? So finally he sends his son, thinking, surely they were honor my son. 
And what do they do to the son? They, in fact, kill the son. Those who have inherited this vineyard, those who are working the vineyard, kill the son of the vineyard owner. And this is a fulfillment of this prophecy of the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's marvelous in our eyes. And then tells a third parable, the marriage feast. Kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, and this is the beginning of chapter 22 who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And so he sent, these, he sent out his slaves, and he's like, he compels them to come, and they won't come. And so he goes on the highways and byways and invites anybody who will to come to the wedding feast. And some, in fact, come. But those who come and aren't wearing the appropriate attire for the wedding are thrown out, and they are condemned already. Oh, I'm sorry. And so you get this, this trio of parables that tell something about Jesus' authority. And the first one, and I'm just, this is a quick going over, and we'll, we'll focus in on the parable of two sons here in a bit, but you need to see this in a bit of context. The first parable of the two sons really identifies the messenger. They identify John and, and recognize that he did, in fact, have authority from heaven. And it also identified the unbelief of the elders. The second parable, the parable of the landowner, really identifies Jesus as the son, rejected and vindicated. And and secondly, it it reveals the judgment of the elders and what they're going to lose, the loss of the vineyard. And the third parable talks about the son who feasts in his father's kingdom and that the judgment of the elders is an accomplished fact. They are already reprobate. They are already judged. They're living in condemnation. And so he reveals these kind of... That's, I think, the, the black and white behind the parable a little bit. But to get into to this parable of two sons, I want to start in Numbers chapter 11 and maybe draw out a principle of what it looks like to be an elder of the people. And then flip back and apply that to um, the parable of the two sons. So Numbers 11, like I said, is a formalizing of the, the eldership in Israel. And they're wandering in the wilderness. They've been doing it for some time. And the people begin to complain because they don't have any meat to eat. And it says, and I, I like it, it's kind of fun. It talks about the, um, the rabble among them really begin to stir them up, which is indicative of um, culture generally. You're always going to have rabble stirring things up. Matthew, Numbers, Numbers 11. And Moses gets upset because they're blaming him. It's your fault, Moses. And Moses goes to God, and what, what, what are you doing to me? i got 600,000 people out here, and they're blaming me for a lack of meat. Where am I going to go and get meat for this number of people? And, and God has a solution for them, which will, in fact, include giving them so much meat that it comes out their nostrils. You want meat? You can have meat. You want to know who supplies? I supply. Quit bothering Moses with this trivia. I'm in charge. But he also has this solution in mind. He wants to give Moses some assistance. The Lord, therefore, and this is 11, verse 16 of Numbers. The Lord, therefore, said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, 
whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Take from the elders, and we're going we're gonna to figure out who the elders of the people are. And this is how it's going to be. They're going to come before you, consecrated. They're going to hear the voice of God spoken to you. They're going to receive the Spirit of God, and then they're going to lead the people. Then they're going to begin to obey the authority, or they're going to obey the voice of God in leading the people. So first off, they're going to hear the authoritative voice of God. They're going to recognize it as God's. Secondly, they're going to receive the Spirit of God, and then they will be elders of the people. That's who my elders are. They recognize my voice, and they have my spirit, and they obey me. That's who my elders are. Fast forward several thousand years, well, 1,500 years, and get to the elders of the people, a unique phrase. Matthew uses it. Peter uses it in his epistle, and that's it. You're not getting it elsewhere. You're getting it in uh, Proverbs as well, I believe. But it's just this, this group that still, it seems, sees themselves as the leaders of Israel, we are the elders. We are recognized as those who are leading the people. But they don't know the voice of God when they hear it. And they don't have the Spirit of God. And so they are incapable of obeying the Word of God. So this, this parable in uh, Matthew 21, I think, says something to that. But what do you think? This is verse 28 of Matthew 21. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and, the, and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So there's this comparison between... And he seems to actually play on the negative aspect of it. Jesus is playing on something negative here. The first son actually probably, in a Palestinian context, really dishonors his father by saying no to his face. But then in the end, still goes and obeys. And the second son has the veneer of piety. It's something akin to a fig tree that has green leaves but has no fruit. Yes, of course I will honor you, Father, and I will go out and work in the vineyard. But then does not follow through. There is no obedience behind the affirmation. 
There's, there's no obedience. There's no service that follows the, the promise. And there's, in fact, no belief behind the words. Um, and the people at least recognize this. And actually, this is funny. I was reading several articles on this, and this is just a side note. This is one of the most contested passages in Matthew. There's, there's three or four prominent versions of this in our ancient documents, and they mix the sons up. And, in fact, some of the versions even have the elders of the people saying, Hey, buddy, want to kick that in the other room? <laughs> That's not what the elders of the people said. Uh, elders of the people saying that the son who didn't obey was the good son. And, and so you have this whole history of contention behind this passage. And it seems appropriate that it would be so because it's such a simple parable that demands simple obedience. And I want to maybe draw this out of the parable. You can't turn your words into actions unless you can recognize authority when you hear it. You can't follow through on what you say. You can't, in fact, serve God like you say you're going to, unless you can recognize authority when you see it. This is the question of authority. Is Jesus speaking with the voice of God? And Jesus' response, of course, is, was John? They would not answer, so Jesus understood that they could not hear the authority with which he spoke. So even though they looked like the leaders of God's people, they were not. They remained in unbelief. They would be judged and lose their nation, and they were already living in judgment. Uh, This passage deals first, I think, with leadership. Anyone who does not have Jesus' spirit must not be your leader. Anyone who does not recognize authority when they hear it must not be your leader. More broadly, all disciples are commanded to lead the world to Christ. Specifically in this Great Commission, in being a disciple, you are meant to be a leader. Just like Israel was meant to be a leader of nations, they were supposed to lead all nations to the house of God. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and lead everybody to worship God. They failed to do so because they didn't recognize God's voice and they didn't have His Spirit. Therefore, they couldn't obey God and therefore lead people to God. So I think it's a question of leadership, but that doesn't really leave anybody off the hook, especially believers, because they really need to be leaders among, among men, drawing all people to Christ. Um, <clears throat> and actually, I think this ties together well with... Um, what I think is a central theme to God's word, which is rest, worship, and serve. I think really beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and, and moving throughout the rest of the text, you have this emphasis on a disciple as someone who rests, worship, and serves. Worship the Son, rest in the Spirit, obey the Father. And if you worship the Son, that is, you trust God, Jesus Christ entirely for the good because you recognize in Him the divine. And secondly, you rest in the Spirit of God because in worshiping Jesus, you then have the Spirit and rest in Him. Then and only then can you obey the Father. You can't turn your promise of obedience to the Father into action unless you're already worshiping Jesus and resting in the Spirit. Obedience follows And this, I think, is really central to my morality. Obedience follows, it does not proceed. 
Obedience follows worshiping God and being indwelled by the Spirit. It doesn't precede that. Obedience is a product. It's not the seed. And it will, of course, it will grow in you and it will change you, but it only changes you in as much as you recognize the authority of Jesus and you rest in His Spirit. It is not the saying or the looking then, it is the serving. Flows from trust and rest. So, he really begins his, his contradiction, well, he begins his condemnation of the elders of the people by saying, you are not the type of people who turn your words into actions. You are not the type of people who obey God. And I really think that stems from, you're not elders of the people. You have failed to be elders of the people. You're not the kind of people who worship and rest. Therefore, you're not the kind of people who can serve and obey. You have failed to be elders of the people when you didn't live up to the high call of God in Numbers chapter 11. To hear His voice and to be indwelled by His Spirit. And because they failed to be elders of the people... They failed the whole people. Israel is rejected because their leaders reject Jesus as the Messiah. Um, And I think the question then is, how do we know the voice of God when we hear it? Um, And uh, that answer really, I think, comes out of uh, this, this whole book on discipleship. It ends with Jesus proclaiming, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So how do we know the voice of God when we hear it? Well, we worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We are filled with His Spirit, and then we obey. And isn't that, I mean, even the Great Commission is all authority on heaven has been given to me. And then, especially in Acts 1-8, what He said, therefore, hey, wait for the Spirit to come upon you, and then go serve. You will know the voice of God when you hear it, if you are worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, resting in His Spirit, and then when you dwell in his word, you will know what in the world you're getting into. Um, yeah, those are a few thoughts on uh, a pretty cool passage. I think that this passage also has something to say about uh, the people of Israel rejecting, or at least saying something with their mouth and rejecting with their actions, and then the Gentiles rejecting with their mouth and accepting with their actions. I think there's a lot of cool imagery there about the history of the world and the people of Israel. I think there's a lot of cool imagery as you walk through these parables. But initially, I just want to bring out that it is a failure to be an elder of the people, and I want to really discourage you from making that same mistake. God is calling you into a life of leadership. He wants you to lead the world to himself. And that life of leadership is not as we might think it to be uh, motivational techniques or, or a really good sales pitch or, in fact, something along the lines of um, even John Maxwell is great. I like some of his work, but his idea of leadership starts with making sure you have followers. And I think Jesus' idea of leadership really starts with making sure you follow him. Um, and that's what I want to draw out with this um, commendation of leadership and don't make the mistake of being those who say that they follow Jesus full-heartedly but do not because they do not recognize his voice when they hear it. Uh, I hope that's at least helpful. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts.